Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 18 of the Ed Stories podcast. I'm your host, Mike Zaffitz. I refer to the episode as episode 19 in the show that you're about to hear. However, it is only episode 18. But today, uh, I had a pretty cool conversation with an author from the Rochester area by the name of Peter Connors. Peter is a poet and an author that has just written a new book about the Grateful Dead show that took place 40 years ago down at Cornell on May 8th, 1977. For anybody who's a, a rock music fan or a Grateful Dead fan out there, you're probably familiar with the show. It is included in the Library of Congress as a legendary concert recording. It is one of the most widely circulated bootlegs of all time, uh, unofficially released, and it is about to be officially released by the band next month in May of 2017, and Peter's book is going to be included with the box set release from the band. So it's pretty cool that he's from right here in Rochester, and uh, he spent about a year working on this book, interviewing people that were um, in and around the band, in and around Cornell University at the time of the show, and it's a really cool read. gives you a lot of insight as to the planning that goes into putting on a rock concert and then really... Um, the culture of the Grateful Dead and how that culture influenced the show, influenced the way that the the crowd and the larger Grateful Dead audience interacted with the show after it happened. So it's a really good read. It's informative. And I first heard this show when I was in college, um, so close to 20 years ago, and I learned stuff about the show that kind of puts it into new perspectives and gives it a fresh a fresh look for me to listen to going forward. So it's a, a good read. Highly recommend that you get it. You can check Peter out uh, at, at Facebook, P-E-T-E-R-C-O-N-N-E-R-S. And then he's got a bunch of different promotional events going on for the book release in and around the Rochester area and the Ithaca area coming up. So without further ado, we're going to turn it over to the interview with Peter Connors and... Here you go. Welcome to episode number 19 of Ed Stories Podcast. Today's guest is Peter Connors, author of a new book due to be released on April 11th, Cornell 77, The Music, The Myth, and the Magnificence of the Grateful Dead's Concert at Barton Hall. Peter, thanks for coming over. Thanks for having me, Mike. So um, in doing some preparation for the podcast today, I read... And uh, I think we might even have talked about the fact that at first when this project was uh, proposed to you, you had some hesitation about about doing the project. And I was wondering uh, what the hesitation was and then what kind of pushed you over the edge to, to finally take on the project and write the book? 
Uh, you know, there are a few different things. One of them is that um, it was right around the time when the 50th anniversary celebrations, um, 50th anniversary of the Grateful Dead, were going on. And there were a ton of articles. And there were also some really good books that were just released. And um, to be honest, I felt like there was I was almost a little bit burnt out on the whole thing. And so and I sort of had this feeling of like, I don't know you know, what else I, I can contribute at this point. It seems like, you know, everything's being said or has been said. Um, so that was one part of it. Another part of it was, you know, the idea of just writing an entire book about a single show um, seemed excessive. It seemed like, you know, I, as a deadhead, I knew the show, of course, and, you know, thought it was great and valued it and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, other than knowing it was a really good show and they were playing very well around that time, I, I didn't know really anything you know about the situation mm -hmm. or how it came about so i just had you know it was it was just such a sort of um strange anomaly to just think about like here's a single show like do a book about it um so it took me a little while to think about uh the idea the concept and to start getting you know generating ideas for what can you do when it comes to this like you know how where do you begin and at a certain point when I was talking to Michael McGandy at Cornell, who was my editor there, um, you know, he was basically like giving me this huge free range and freedom to generate ideas. And then I would give him some thoughts like, you know, before we even had a deal, like, well, maybe I would do this. And he'd say, you know, oh, that's great. Well, what if you, you know, sort of added this in too? And so between us, we we sort of hashed out um, a way forward of how things might proceed if, you know, it worked out. And then before I knew it, I was signing a contract and writing the book. Cool. It must have been exciting for you to take on as a, a fan of the band. So you mentioned all these ideas that you brought to your editor. And reading through the book, it's not just about the show. Uh, everything in the book is related to the show in one way or another. But I wanted to talk to you about the kind of the big picture of the book, how you chose to structure it, and uh, what the reader can kind of expect if they're if they're interested in, in taking a read. Yeah, well, I, you know, what I really realized is it's an opportunity to look at sort of dead culture as a whole, um, in particular, the, the taping um, scene that went on around the Grateful Dead. And I'll explain that in a little bit. Um, but, you know, to just sort of look at the concert from different angles, you know, what was going on with the band at that time? Um, where were they in their careers? Um, what was going on musically in larger society? So there's, you know, the first chapter is called uh, The Grateful Dead and the Sex Pistols. Oh, no, the Sex Pistols, Disco and the Dead. Um, and it really just looks at, like, where did the dead fit in in 1977? And, you know, the answer is they really didn't. Um, but it's not strange for the Grateful Dead to not fit in to the larger mainstream mm -hmm. society. That was sort of their, you know, their thing. They, they made their own path through. Um, but it's interesting to take them and drop them in the middle of 1977 as far as a cultural moment and a musical moment. Um, so that was part of it. And then, you know, as I said, the, the way that this show in particular got so famous was really largely about um, taping and the way that Deadheads um, shared music and shared recordings. And um, in particular, uh, there was a, a woman named Betty Cantor Jackson who worked for the band and recorded the show. And when a recording uh, of hers of this show 
started to get out and um, reach more people. Um, it was such a good recording and it was such a great concert that pretty soon, like everybody who had a taper collection had a good quality um, recording of the Spartan Hall show. So you have, you know, a show that's being widely circulated, widely listened to. It's a really good concert. And eventually it just became like, you know, everybody's got to have Barton Hall and everybody knew Barton Hall and um, and it held up, you know, obviously if the show wasn't great, it wouldn't matter how many people got it. It would just be sitting in the corner, but you know, people love the show and, and for good reasons musically. Um, so those were the different sort of angles I decided to look at it through. And then of course, once I got in and started doing interviews, you know, I did 30 plus interviews for the book. Um, and I say that, uh, also I should add that was all, inside of a year's time, actually less than a year's time, which my, my deadline between getting a contract and actually turning in the finished manuscript was less than a year. Mm -hmm. So it was a crazy fast um, project too, but it made me really hyper-focus on it and get like super deep inside of the show and the concept for the book um, really fast and intensely and then just sort of nail it. Yeah. I do want to come back to the taping in just a minute. That's that's a really interesting aspect of um, this show and then just the larger, I guess, rock music scene in general that's gone on since the advent of taping with The Grateful Dead. But you talk about your deadline that you had for, for the book. Does that had, Did that have to do with the upcoming anniversary of the show? Because uh, we're coming up on 40 years on May 8th, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, in no you know uncertain terms, they wanted a book for the 40th anniversary of right. the show, and um, and that meant turning in the final manuscript. You know, a good let's say four months at least before um, the show, which is May eighth. Um, I I don't remember the exact date that I started the project, but I will tell you, I remember thinking, okay, nine months. You know, like that's how long it takes to make a baby. Um, if, uh, you know, a human being can be gestated and created, you know, in nine months, I could probably do a book in nine months. It's a good comparison. I did not think of that myself. But. <laughs> yeah. So it must have been around nine months because I kept going back to that in my head every time sure. I got burnt out. I'm like, you know what? People make humans in this period of time. I can make a book. Um, but, you know, the, the challenge, one of the challenges in doing something that quickly uh, with a research-based book is, you know, because of the interviews, um, I really wanted to talk to as many people as I could. And I ended up talking to the people who organized the show, to people around the band, to, you know, fans who were there, um, to Betty Cantor Jackson herself, who recorded the show, um, you know, the, the Dead's manager, Dennis McNally, and publicist, I should say, um, you know, all sorts of folks. And but to do that, you have to find out how to contact the people if I didn't already have their contacts. Um, you know, reach out to them, get, you know, contact back from them, set up a time, do the interview, and then frankly, transcribe the interview and listen right. to it and type it all out and then decide how to use it. So times 30 um, with all the other writing that you had to figure out, you know, and all the other research within nine months, it was it was no small task. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, so to circle back to the to the taping aspect, I have really kind of two questions. The first is... Um, was there so Betty's tape was the one that became so famous, the recording that got into so many people's collections, and now the one that's going to be released officially by Rhino Records, correct? Correct. So, there can I assume that there was no official soundboard recording that the band was doing at that time for their own purposes, or was her recording an official recording? Yeah, I mean, that that really becomes the crux of a. a 
what uh, amounted to a legal issue for years um, that sort of tied up the release of this recording. So, I mean, the short answer is that the band, in some way, somebody was who associated with the band was always recording. Right. Um, and that really started with Owsley um, Stanley, who was doing the sound. We call him Bear. Um, he started recording really for himself and for the band to listen back to their shows. There was no sense of like, we're going to record this and put them out. Nobody ever thought like that, you know? Um, so, or, or even frankly, we're going to record these and, and circulate them among the fans or let the fans record them. That, you know, there's a misconception that the Grateful Dead allowed people to tape their shows right from the start. And it actually wasn't legally sanctioned by the band until 1984 um, when they set up a taping section. So the history of, you know, live recordings of the Grateful Dead is a little more complicated than people think. And, um, and that includes within the band too. And in the Betty situation, you know, she had been, um, going to Jerry Garcia band shows. I mean, remember, this is a, a woman who knew them from the sixties, you know, right from the start. Um, and just got into the habit of recording their shows on her own and recording Jerry Garcia band shows and, you know, going back and listening to them with Jerry and so forth. So, you know, if you hear her talk about it in many ways, it was just something she always did. She did it as a fan. She did it for her friends. You know, she did it because she loved Jerry and she wanted to hear him play and sit and listen to the shows with him and so forth. Um, at a certain point she got hired by the band, um, and she had done different sound work for them in a professional capacity before, but she got hired to go on the road, um, with them officially. Uh, and along the way, she was also recording the shows while she was working. So, you know, it becomes this issue of, you know, for her saying, well, I, I always recorded the shows and I was just doing what I always did. And her contention has always been that, you know, it was her equipment and it was her tape and all these things and so they're her recordings and of course the grateful dad you know's point has been well you know you're recording on our time you were recording with our using our equipment um so and certainly the music is ours and unfortunately you know there were other complex sort of legal wrinkles in the situation but it wound up to a bit of a, a contentious situation around the ownership of the what we call the Betty board because um, the the recording artist is Betty Cantor Jackson and there were soundboard recordings so they got shortened in Grateful Dead language to Betty boards um, about who owned the Betty board recordings and and until that got settled um, nobody could release them because the ownership wasn't clear. And that has since been resolved, I take it, with the with the upcoming release? Yeah, it has. It, it finally got worked out. And, um, you know, I think everybody's really happy about that. Because, I mean, at the, you know, at the end of the day, everybody just loves this music. Um, you know, the fans have been listening to these Betty Board recordings, most of them, for a long time. And But, you know, once um, the folks at Rhino get their hands on these things and you know they do amazing jobs with these releases they do with this beautiful you know they clean up the recordings um they sound you know better than ever before um they do this wonderful packaging they have you know all these great liner notes and it really makes it um an occasion you know it makes it a special a special release a special occasion and i think for particularly for you know recordings and shows that have become as iconic as um the barton hall show it's due, you know, it's fitting to have that sort of treatment for the show. So I think everybody's really excited to have finally gotten there. Yeah, it's great. And the Betty board from, from the book, you can tell that that's just one aspect of so many that have gone into the, 
the legend of the show uh, and the mystique that kind of surrounds the show. So let's talk about some of those other factors that have that influenced influenced the show. So the show was held on May eighth. 1977 and i'm hoping that you can talk a little bit um just about how that show came to cornell uh in the middle of that east coast tour that the the band was on and just touch on the people that were behind that because they were not deadheads uh which were there were so many young young kids were deadheads at, at the time and the folks that set up the show they weren't but let's hear a little bit about them well, you know, I think one important thing to keep in mind when talking about this show is that starting from about 1970, the Grateful Dead had a real um, uh, intentional um, plan to play college campuses, particularly in the East and the Northeast. Um, and they started to do that. And if you go back, there's all these amazing recordings of the dead playing every campus you can think mm -hmm. of up and down the East Coast. You know, they would get on the SUNY circuit and play all, a bunch of SUNY schools. Um, you name it. You know, they played all sorts of different venues. But it was an intentional thing to get in into these colleges. And, you know, the funny thing is people have this... Um, preconception about like what a deadhead is and what they look like. And it's this sort of, you know, person in a van and they're dirty and they're maybe, you know, just strung out on drugs and they have no future and no past and all this stuff. And, you know, the reality is the people who uh, have always been into the Grateful Dead tend to be, you know, college educated, um, people on sort of a professional track. And a lot of them got exposed to the Grateful Dead for the first time while they were in college. And some mm -hmm. of them in very good colleges, even Ivy League ones like Cornell. Um, so the fact that the Grateful Dead were actually playing the campus isn't surprising. They'd been doing this for years. What was the, just to, not to interrupt, but what was the, you say it was deliberate. What was the intent there? Was it just to build an audience on the East Coast? Yeah, it really was. I mean, it, you know, at the time when they started to play the college campuses, they could, you know, obviously um, bring people into shows around San Francisco and the music halls there. And again, we're going back into the late 60s um, and they could, you know, bring people into shows in Manhattan. But beyond that, nobody was really, you know, coming to Grateful Dead shows. Nobody really knew about the Grateful Dead. And so what they really did was go out and build an audience, you know, going campus to campus and of course, people, you know, on these campuses were part of anti-war movements. They were part of, you know, counterculture in many different ways. And, and they had known about the Grateful Dead, but they probably hadn't had a chance to actually see them. So, you know, here's here's the Grateful Dead, you know, from San Francisco coming and appearing on your campus, at you know, at Colgate or at New Paltz or whatever it might be. And it was pretty exciting, I think, for the college students. And then so you take that and then you also take the fact that there's these recordings of them playing all these different places floating around. And and the guy down the hall, you know, has 50 different concerts of the Grateful Dead. And, you know, you could go down and smoke a joint with him and listen to these, you know, recordings. And then the dead are playing down the street. And, you know, and, and meanwhile, hey, the dead are also playing another you know, hour past that. So if we go to this one, we might as well go and maybe see the one down sure. the road an hour, you yeah. know. So, I mean, it was very, I mean, we, people talk about, you know, grassroots efforts and so forth. Um, I mean, it, it, this is as grassroots as it gets because, you know, the Grateful Dead were recording and getting their albums released with Warner Brothers. And, you know, it's not that they didn't have this sort of uh, major label, um, you know, behind them. But really, what the way that they grew their audience, the way that they became the Grateful Dead was very much a grassroots effort. And, you know, give credit to them. Like, they worked their butts off. They toured constantly, and they built an audience. Mm -hmm. 
that's so interesting and uh that 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 type of effort brought him to cornell and what like i mentioned earlier was one of many factors that contributed to the legend of the show so it was uh one thing you touch on in the book was the fact that it was it was mother's day and it was uh, a snowy day and i think that uh one of the things that at least i didn't know was that the the kids that were working at the gate the show was sold out and they had some tricks up their sleeve to kind of get the people that were outside looking for a ticket out of the snow and into the show. And I was wondering, you know, if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, that was a fun story. So along the way, I, I did get to interview um, the people who were on what they call the Cornell Concert Commission, and we'll call them the CCC for short. Um, but basically, these were the kids. And at that time, they were kids. Of course, now they're all, you know, in their 50s. And um, at the time, they were college kids on the Cornell Concert Commission who wanted to bring the Grateful Dead to Cornell. And there had been some issues at a concert, a uh, Deep Purple concert um, with ZZ Top opening uh, back in 1972, I think it was, maybe 73, um, where basically there was a riot at this Deep Purple concert and a ton of damage got done and instruments were damaged and turf was torn up. And, you know, Cornell in general was wary of having rock and roll shows on their campus. Um, and the Cornell Concert Commission was really intent on, you know, revitalizing the concert scene. And, um, and in particular, you know, a lot of them love the Grateful Dead and they wanted the Grateful Dead there. Um, and so essentially what happened is to, to be able to get the Grateful Dead to campus, um, the administration had said to them, you know, we'll do it, but you have to find somebody to really back the show. You have to find a promoter who's willing to take responsibility for any losses that may be incurred and to sort of take the bull by the horns, you know, in a professional sense, um, if you're going to put on the show. And so at that time, John Scherer, um, was the big East Coast concert promoter who was really pushing the Grateful Dead, um, not only at the Capitol Theater, which he owned but you know just in general he was he was their big supporter um on the east coast as bill graham was uh, predominantly on the west coast he had the Fillmore east here but you know really this was sort of john share territory so john share stepped in worked with the cornell concert commission to bring the uh, bring the grateful dead to barton hall in 1977 and of course it was kids running the door. You know, it was kids who were ushers. It was kids who were, um, they weren't the crew. I mean, the Grateful Dead had their own crew, but they were helping the crew and they were working security and they were just a bunch of college students. So one of the great stories that I got that you refer to, um, I spoke to a guy who was uh, helping organize everybody who worked security and worked the door and worked the admission, you know, doors um, into the show. And at a certain point he decided, you know, there were going to be all these people without tickets and so once they got in, everybody who had tickets through the door, 8,500 people, um, he decided it would be fun to let people in for free, but only if they did something or gave something. And it couldn't be money and it couldn't be drugs and it couldn't be anything like that. These weren't bribes. He wanted people to do things like sing happy birthday, to do you know, push-ups, to do, um, to do a little jig, to do a little dance, to do whatever, just something fun, playful, whimsical. Um, he let people give him movie theater tickets. There had been a showing of the creature from the black lagoon in 3d on campus the night before. Do you have a, a, a ticket from that? You can give it that to us to get in. So a really fun, playful thing. And he let a couple hundred people into the show that way. Um, and, you know, again, it's just a good example of how, you know, when I was first approached about this book, there's no way I could know that something like that happened. Right. And it ends up being a really fun part of the story that's, you know, it's not a major 
event by any means, but it's a fun side story. And really, when it comes to the Grateful Dead in particular, that's what it's all about. I mean, it's all these individuals having these really incredible, you know, personally transformative um, experiences within the milieu of the concert scene. And that's what really made, you know, Grateful Dead shows special. Right, right. And it's and it's one more thing among the, the countless uh, shows that they did that could have contributed to something in the atmosphere, something in the air in the building that could have affected the band. You, you never know. There's just so many different factors that go into to that night, which was great. So you interviewed all these kids, kids that are now adults, obviously. But um, I'm wondering, did you have any trouble getting interviews or was anybody hesitant to talk about their experiences at the concert or was everybody just all all on board i mean as far as people that i actually spoke to um there was one person who wanted me to not use his real name um and he had some great stories so i did include him and i changed his name and i say right in the book you know i'm changing this person's name um at their request to to protect their identity um, you know, the bottom line is he had done uh, a lot of drugs then. He had sort of grown up in Manhattan going to, I think he saw his first show and he was like 13 or something on acid. You know, he was just, so he had this whole pretty intense background of, of music and drugs, especially. And he had been sober. He's been sober and clean for probably 30 or 40 years now. Um, you know, he's a lawyer and so forth. And he, he just didn't want to sort of bring all that into his current day and which is completely understood. And, you know, I'm happy to respect that. Um, but at the same time, I didn't want to not use his stories cause there were some really good ones. Right. Yeah. So I changed his name, um, in the book beyond that. I mean, I guess the only thing I would say is that, you know, I would have loved to talk directly to a band member about the show um and i wasn't able to do that and i reached out and other people reached out on my behalf um i did even get a couple emails back and forth with bob weir who basically said you know i I will listen to it again but i really don't remember anything from that show um i did get uh through somebody else a response from bill kreutzman about a question about a sticker that was on jerry garcia's um guitars travis bean uh, guitar that he was playing that night um the sticker said the enemy is listening and i was very curious about that so somebody uh on my behalf asked bill kreutzman and he gave um, a response to that and that's in the book but you know it would have been nice to actually sit down with a band member and talk more in depth um one of the things, and I believe this is absolutely true, uh, one of the things Mark Pincus, who's the president of their uh, record label, said to me when I was interviewing him was, you know, it's not that they don't care. It's not that, you know, they're they're disinterested even. Um, they're just their main focus is on what they're doing in the future. And they're really forward thinking artists. They're forward thinking people. They don't like to spend a lot of time dwelling on the past and um, and frankly, you know, the other truth, and I don't think it will be a surprise to anybody is this was one of, you know, 2,300 shows that this band played. It was, you know, in the late 70s, like on a college, you know, a college campus. I doubt that there's much that they remember <laughs> right. at all, you know. So they might remember in general ways that era or that maybe even that tour or something. But, you know, as far as like the gig itself, it was another gig that they played, um, one of many. So I would have been more surprised if somebody, you know, one of them came out with some amazing story from Cornell. Um than not to hear anything at all but really you know that's that's where the fan stories come in and and fill in the picture of like why was this particular show so special to them in particular Mm -hmm. so what's your thoughts on why it was so 
so special. There's we've talked about so many layers that have gone into the show, so many circumstances that were particular to that one night, maybe in comparison to the other couple thousand shows that they did. But what's up with this one show and the legend that has uh, gotten attached to it and everything that's led up to this to this finally getting a um, official release from the band? Um, you know, the first thing is, is musically, if this wasn't a great show, then we wouldn't be talking about it. Um, you know, all the other stuff that goes into making a legend is all true and valid and so forth. But if the music didn't stand up, then we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't have anything to talk about. Um, it's a really great show. The dead were playing phenomenal music at that time. Um, they had some new tunes at that time, new tunes that they were really delving into and exploring, um, in particular, the Scarlet uh, begonias into fire on the mountain the scarlet uh, fire that they played that night um, was still new to them and they were still finding their way through it and it is a blazingly hot version of it in particular the transition between scarlet begonias and fire on the mountain is you know one of the great musical transitions um you know and recorded dead history uh and this was something you know it's something special that the grateful did dead were able to do and in particular it was a real strength of jerry garcia's um this idea of like we're going to play one song and we're going to keep playing and we're going to eventually you know transition that into another song um and we're going to do it through this really um incredible uh exploratory you know exciting musical passage that's going to be different every time um, and so, you know, to anybody who's really curious about like what made the Grateful Dead special musically, that's a good thing to play them because it's very unique. And people say, you know, even, well, you know, the Grateful Dead improvised, but so did jazz musicians and all that. Well, that's true. You know, within a song, of course, jazz musicians improvise, the Grateful Dead improvise within songs. Um, but I don't think you can say that about transitioning between songs and improv improvisations that attach songs. That's pretty unique to the Grateful Dead. So they did that very well that night. Um, musically, um, a lot of people refer to the Morning Dew on that uh, at that show, and it is pretty easy to say that's one of the best Morning Dews, if not the best Morning Dew um, that they played. Uh, that's really a Jerry Garcia sort of spotlight number, and um, vocally and musically, he is just on fire for that. Um, so those are you know a couple really special musical moments. And, I, you know, one of the things I say in the book is this is also a great show because it touches on a lot of different things that the Grateful Dead did well. So there was this sort of cowboy song aspect to it. Um, there was a real like rock and roll aspect to it. Um, they did this this dancing in the streets. That's a super long version of dancing in the streets that they were doing at that time that, you know, some people wrote off as like disco dad. And, you know, this is this is cheesy or whatever. But um, the truth is, it's just really funky. And it, it it's much more funk based than it is um, <laughs> disco based. So musically, it's it's a great show. And then you throw in all the different ways that people came upon that show and so forth and all the trading and that makes it into you know a widespread legend but it, at the base of it all it's because it was a magical night of music yeah that's great there's definitely uh if, if you read through the set list and particularly after you read through your detailed description of the set list you can really sh see the widespread genres of music that they kind of brought to the table that night and uh killed it it was it was great so yeah that was uh, one of my favorite parts of the book to write too is basically i go through in the middle section and i do a song by song breakdown of the entire concert 
Um, and I got to get go into the roots of the music or the roots of each song. You know, where did it come from? In some cases, it had been adapted from older versions of other songs and, you know, sort of lineages and histories and where it fit into the Dead's catalog. And then also how was it played that night and what was special about that version? So that was a really fun section to write. And I put it right in the middle because it just breaks down the whole show song by song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good, good place to put it, obviously, because you you kind of structure the book where you set up the show and the circumstances um, going into it. And then afterwards, you kind of talk about what's taking place after, which we touched on a little bit earlier. So I wanted to uh, bring up some of your other projects that you've worked on. Um, you have kind of chronicled the jam scene in uh, American music. And I was wondering, uh, after you wrote this book, what connections are there between this book and the Grateful Dead uh, experience and then how that's kind of played itself out and morphed into the, the current jam music scene that's really uh, very popular now in, uh, in, in America. Um, you know, I mean, the, it, it's funny. So the book you're talking about, Jamerica, was an oral history of the jam band scene. So my goal was to go uh, post Grateful Dead, so to not focus on the Grateful Dead and really look at the the origins of the scene, which you know you can put it like Fish, Widespread Panic, Aquarium Rescue Unit, Blues Traveler, Spin Doctors, um, and then there were other bands at that level too, um, or you know that were playing in that era too. A lot of them, you know, there was a band around here that called uh, I think they were out of Ithaca, actually called Blind Man's Holiday. There was a band called Ominous Sea Pods, yep. you know, Deep Banana Blackout. I mean, there was a lot of bands that were playing you know, uh, um, improvisational rock music that clearly was influenced by the Grateful Dead at that time. Are you talking um, late 90s, mid to late 90s? Early, yeah. I would say like late 80s, early okay. 90s. Um, There's a, a place called the Wetlands in New York City that became really a home for a lot of a lot of these bands played there. Pretty much everybody played Wetlands at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, before Wetlands, there was a place called Nightingales that was sort of ground zero for Blues Traveler and for Spin Doctors who really, you know, brought the scene forward in in New York City. And they were sort of, Blues Traveler was really the house band for the Wetlands. Uh Um, So, you know, my goal was to focus on those bands, and I did. Um, But one thing that kept happening is that it kept coming back to the Grateful Dead. (laughs) And I will say, honestly, that was sort of against my intentions. You know, I was Mm -hmm. like, well, we're going to focus on this next generation of bands, you know, and and at this point, the next three generations that we're into. and it, it just didn't work because the Grateful Dead kept coming back, you know, and it made me realize that they are just so inextricably intertwined with what is now, you know, festival, the festival scene, yeah. um, you know, which basically is like a bunch of these different bands playing on a bill throughout the day or for three days and people can go there and set and camp, you know, camp out and, and tape, hang out and they could record a lot of them and all this stuff, you know, all this stuff came out of the Grateful Dead and we could, you know, say different, you know, it also came out of this or that. And, the, you know, there's truths to all of it. But the bottom line is it came out of what the Grateful Dead had pioneered. And, you know, there's there's a term that this sort of... uh 
stepsister of, of grassroots is astroturfing, which is a term that basically means you, you make it appear as if you're doing things on a grassroots level, but it's actually artificial and it's more market driven and it's, um, you know, instead of people just organically passing your things around because they just need to word of mouth, you sort of plant those seeds and you do things and, you know, whatever that's that it is what it is. You know, I think there's lots of different ways to get word out about your projects. Um, but I think a lot of people took what happened with the Grateful Dead organically and they figured out what parts to replicate and how they can do it. And they save themselves a lot of time and effort and you know struggle and failure along the way by figuring out, hey, you know what? We should just let people tape, you know, right off the bat. And, yeah. and then, you know, what we should do is we should tape off the soundboard. And as soon as the show is over, we should make it available to people as a download and they can give us, you know, five bucks or whatever. And and people love that, you know, yeah. and they really do and they want it. So all these different things that the Grateful Dead stumbled through, you know, sort of failed and fell on their face. And then, you know, succeeded at and sort of strange ways that weren't intended. And, you know, a lot of different bands now could look back and say, oh, okay, we know how to do that. Um, and, and there is a template for it. Yeah. I wonder how many, how many fans realize that that strong connection, if you're, you know, watching Kanye West or Radiohead at one of these big festivals that there's, it really kind of all started with, with the work that the Grateful Dead put into it. Just to, just to piggyback off your uh, soundboard instantaneous download type thing. They're actually, I'm sure you know this, but there there's bands that are doing the real time soundboard streaming to headphones. You can rent headphones when you go into the show and you can basically listen to the, the feed off the board as the show is happening. So it's crazy. It's just the, the evolution of, you know, what started back in the sixties and seventies with the grateful dead, which is great. Um, now, ironically, I, I will. I would come out against that. <laughs> okay, you know, for my own curmudgeonly being older person reasons. You know, I think, I, I, in one sense, sonically, I think that's super cool. You know, to be able to hear like the best representation of the music purely. Um, you know, there's an interesting thing in Grateful Dead culture where there's soundboard recordings that come right from the soundboard. Um, and then there's audience recordings, which is what people recorded with their microphone stands in the audience. Mm -hmm. And there are people who love each for different reasons. And one of the charms of having an audience recording is that you get the crowd in there. You get the crowd noise. You can hear them cheering. You can hear their reaction. I think, you know, it, and it's an interesting idea to put on headphones during the concert and sort of make your own soundboard recording of it as it's going on. And a little, in a sense to me, it's taking yourself out of the actual experience um, that you're living in that moment. Much in the same way if somebody, you know, was, was viewing the concert through their cell phone, you know, and filming it or obsessed right, sure. with taking pictures or whatever. These are all ways to sort of um, put a filter between you and the experience that you're actually living. So for me, I would say, you know, be at the concert now, just like experience it, hear the crowd noise, hear the chatter, hear all these different things, um, and then go home and get the soundboard recording and listen to it. So that's my old man curmudgeonly <laughs> voice. Here's the other old man curmudgeonly voice in my head going, you know what? People talk through shows so much now, and they are so distracted, and they so want to focus on their phones and their, you know, what's going on. They don't listen to the music, and it can be really distracting and frustrating. And so I could see also the benefit of just having the headphones so you could hear the pure music without all the the chatter in the background um but really what i'd like to say is people should just um shut up and listen to the music more i do hear you there i i don't i kind of see both sides of it i i think it's you know the live music experience is so subjective that 
whatever you get from it, I mean, it's really individualized, I think. And I think that if people want to go and they want to be in, in a crowd and they can feel the music in there, physically feel the, the bass and, and stuff. And they want to be in the heat and be in the, um, the energy of the room, but they want to get that sound feed in there. It's personally, I don't like it. I do. My personal preference is to, um, interact with the show the same way that you just described but i kind of like that the options are out there for this new generation of of kids that are taking in taking in live music um that's my take i guess so have you have you uh seen any of the i'm sure you have and the the new grateful dead side projects that are going on dead and company or any of the new phil and friends lineups or anything like that what are your what are your thoughts you 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 like those Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I've I've kept up right along the way um since Jerry died and and I've tried to see whenever I can I try to see what the guys are up to in their different configurations. Um you know, I saw two Dead and Company shows on the last tour. I saw Madison Square Garden and I saw a show in Buffalo. I have tickets for Dead and Company in New Jersey for this upcoming tour. Meadowlands? Uh no, it's at Camden. Oh, okay, Camden, yeah. New Jersey, sure. yeah. Um, I saw, uh, Phil and friends play at the Capitol theater when, um, Keller Williams, a, a buddy of mine, a great musician was playing with them. Um, and you know, I've seen, I saw, uh, Billy, um, playing with his different bands who, you know, I, I absolutely love a lot of the side projects he's done in particular, um, you know, Mickey Hart solo band. So I, I'll go and see anybody, you know, see what they're doing. I really loved the further shows and I saw a lot of further shows when they were touring. Um, I enjoyed that, that lineup a lot. I thought it was great. And it was great to see, you know, Phil and Bob playing together. Um, I think Joe Russo is a phenomenal drummer. And of course, you know, you can't beat having Billy and Mickey back there. I'm sure Joe would say the same thing, but you know what, if I can't have, um, excuse me, if I can't have Billy and Mickey, um, I would take Joe Russo. I think he's amazing. So the lineup is great. I like the guys who, who they've got, you know, just surrounding them. I think they're making great choices. I mean, uh, um, O'Teal is a sick, you know, bass player for dead and company. Right. I left, I love, uh, Jeff Trementi. I've always loved his organ, you know, since he was just playing with Bob and, mm-hmm. you know, all the different stuff he's been doing. I wish they would turn him up more cause I like his playing so much and I think it gets buried sometimes, but, um, it's fun, you know, it's, it's, I, I always respect what these guys are doing. Um, I'm always curious to hear what they're doing and whatever it is, you know, whether it's a project that has nothing to do with the Grateful Dead or if it's them, you know, doing Grateful Dead music with other people, you know, these are great creative talents. Um, they've maintained this creativity throughout their lives and I support and celebrate that. And, you know, I, I'm a junkie for it. I'll go and see it. <laughs> it's amazing. The, the, the schedule that these guys keep up and have kept up for just 50 years, 60 years. Um, it's just, it's mind boggling when you think about it, that they're rarely off the road and they're, they're still doing it. They clearly have a passion for it. And it's just, uh, the effect that they've had on so many people is just when you really take a step back and think about it is mind blowing. And the fact that they're still going is even more, more mind blowing. So we're just about out of time here. Um, I do want to thank you for coming by. Let's kind of plug some um, release parties, opportunities, ways to get the book. Um, why don't we just start with when the book is coming out and where people can get it when it does or pre-order. I don't know if it's available for pre-order. Um, yeah, so the book is it's really out now. The official release date was on uh, April 11th, which is next week. 
Um, but it is out now and it's shipping out of Amazon and all those different places wherever you order it. So, um, you know, I'd love to say go to an independent bookstore and buy the book. Uh, it, they might not stock it, in which case you can ask them to stock it. I love to see people supporting independent um, bookstores. But you can get the book uh, technically through any place you can buy books. So whether that's your Amazon, your Barnes & Noble, um, your independent bookstore, if they don't have it, please ask them to order you a copy. <laughs> um, so that's it. And then I'm going to be doing, you know, I have some gigs or some events lined up here in Rochester. Um, I also have some in Ithaca. And um, so the first one coming up is in Rochester. It's a place called Midtown Athletic Club, which sounds like a funny place to do an event like this, but it's a real fun place. And it's filled with secret deadheads, people who are into the dead, but you might not know it by looking at them. Those uh, Ivy Leaguers that you mentioned earlier, perhaps. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Um, so that's going to be on April 27th from 6 to 8 p.m. Um, it is a membership club, but you don't have to be a member to go. You don't have to be a part of the health club. You can just um, either call them at 461-2300 or go to midtown.com and just let them know you want to come. They're going to have beer. They're going to have wine. Um, I'm going to give a talk. There'll be a book signing. We're going to listen to the show. It's going to be a real good party. So that's April 27th, 6 to 8. I'm also going to do uh, another thing here in Rochester on May 20th at a place that's opening up called Funkin' Waffles. Um, and if people are into jam band music, uh, that name probably sounds familiar from the Funkin' Waffles in Syracuse, New York, that houses and, and has hosted, I should say, lots of good music in the past few years. So they're opening up a venue here in Rochester in a place that used to be called Water Street Music Hall. And if you're real old, it used to be called The Warehouse, and it was called about five other things in between mm -hmm. them, the Horizontal Boogie Bar and all sorts of stuff. But uh, it's at 204 North Water Street. Um, it will now be Funkin' Waffles. Um, and that will be uh, May 20th, 8 p.m. So I'll do a, a reading and a signing and so forth. But at 9.30, um, a dead cover band called Pearly Baker's Best is going to come on, and they are going to play the Barton Hall show set list in its entirety. Um, so that's going to be 10 bucks at the door and we'll, we'll have raffles and do fun stuff. So, um, that's May 20th, uh, Funkin' Waffles. And then I'm going to go down to the state theater in Ithaca on the actual release, um, the actual anniversary day, May 8th. Uh, it's the 40th anniversary of the show. Um, the state theater in Ithaca is going to put on a big party with, um, a tribute band called Terrapin Station playing a show i'm going to read and i'll do a book signing there um there's going to be other guest speakers uh, still to be announced there and it's just going to be a big party in the state theater it's a very cool place so that's on the actual may 8th the anniversary and then i'm going to be down at um, book expo uh two in june um, doing some book things there and i don't know along the way i'll probably do other things if people ask i tend to show up so if you are doing other things where can people find you on social media so they can keep up if, if you're going to be around honestly probably the best thing is to just um friend me on facebook i'm completely uh i don't discriminate at all if you friend me i'll friend you back um and i do i tend to post all the event stuff up on there that's really the most immediate way to sort of keep track of what's going on awesome well peter congratulations on the book i really enjoyed it i think uh, deadheads all over the world are going to enjoy it and um, rock music fans in general are, are going to enjoy it, get a lot out of it, learn something more that they didn't know or 20 things or about the show that they've probably listened to a million times but never knew uh, that went into it. So congratulations, and I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming by today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. You got it.